I like to give some answers along with some questions. You know, when we open up a, a topic, there's something at the end that uh, is a payoff. Um, but I, I found here some very interesting uh, statement in the Talmud, which I think is telling us something very important, and I don't really know what it is. So what I was thinking about doing here, and we'll see how long this might not take the, the whole session, but we'll move on to something else. Uh, but I was thinking to maybe discuss it over here and see what you guys say, because um, if I read this, uh, many, many questions will arise, I think, for everyone here. Uh, so, what do you guys say about that? Shall we? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, as we are all familiar, the, the Talmud is the greatest collection of Jewish writing ever written. Uh, it, it was compiled about 1,500 years ago by all the great rabbis and scholars and brilliant geniuses that the Jewish people have uh, produced. And to this day, it is widely studied, and it's the most widely st- uh, st- studied document of scholarship in the world, more than anything else. Um, and we are familiar with some of the characters. I'm sure we've all heard of, of Hillel and Shammai. Everyone knows the name? Uh, everyone knows the stories, the famous stories about Hillel and Shammai? and the relationship that they had. Uh, for example, the great story that everyone's familiar with, or maybe people are not familiar with, of this Gentile who comes to, uh, to Shammai and says to him, I want to study all of Torah while standing on one foot. And obviously this ludicrous, all of Torah, like most of us don't study all of Torah throughout our entire lives. How is that oral? The Gentile doesn't know anything, and he wants to study all Torah on one, on, while standing on one foot. He doesn't get out of here. What do you wait for my pen? And then he goes to Hillel, and Hillel tells him, oh, I'll tell you all of Torah on one, on one leg, and that's that that you dislike, don't do to your fellow. That's the core of the Torah. Everything else is commentary. Um, that's, uh, that's the great Hillel. Uh, now, Hillel and Shammai, they were study partners, uh, and they each developed an entire academy of scholars that followed the, the path of the, of the, the wisdom and the, the approach and the principles of Hillel and Shammai, respectively. Um, and the Talmud recounts about, I think, 318 different disputes uh, that are documented between these two academies that they existed for hundreds of years. Either way, we find in the book of Erevin uh, a very, I think it's a very bizarre argument that they had. Not only that, not only is it a bizarre argument, but it tells us how long they spent arguing it. And it reads as follows. This is in the book of Erevin, 13b. The book of Erevin deals with Eruvs. What's an Eruv? Something like that, right. With different kinds of Eruvs and whatever. Make the public domain a public domain. That, or private domain. Private. Exactly. Huh? A mixing. Yes. Um, so Thomas says as follows. Two and a half years, the schools of Shammai and the schools of Hill had an argument, had a debate. Two and a half years. These said, means doesn't tell us who it is. These groups said, it's better for a person to have not been created. That's preferable to them have to them being created. And these said, which means the other the the, the opposing view says that no, it's better for a person to indeed yes be created versus not being created. That's the argument. And finally, after two and a half years of vigorous debate, the great minds of the world, right, the smartest people in the world, are engaged in a two and a half year debate about this 
subject. And finally, they concluded, after two and a half years, that it's indeed better for a person to have not been created. That's preferable than him being created. But now that he's created, he should investigate his behavior. Thus concludes a very mysterious and bizarre piece of Talmud. So, um, this debate is obviously recorded for posterity in the Talmud because there's some sort of lesson for us, I think. Um, but I think that, it, the, you know, it's very problematic. What exactly is, what, what's the debate? Do you imagine two people having, let's we, let's we sat there, so let's, let's debate something. Oh, what should we talk about, you know? Uh, I don't know, climate change or uh, gun rights? Well, what's, what's there to debate, right? Is it better for us to have been created or not? So is that very practical? Is that really what the rabbis are arguing? It's like, what are these rabbis doing studying scholarship in these academies for all these years? We know that in, in times past, it was standard procedures for young Jewish scholars to spend a minimum of 14 years in total isolation in study. I guess if they have such harebrained arguments, you can study for forever, right? I can, I can see how it's beneficial to, to debate something to... The, to an extreme that's unrealistic because at some point it has an application but this is an argument that applies to nobody hmm? because we're already all created so it's why, why when you say us do you mean like us as Jews or us as well it humans? says it's a very good question it says Adam Adam is man uh, mankind okay. like I would assume it's mankind. All of mankind that's what I would assume that's a good question it doesn't say clearly now maybe it's I mean would they be asking about mankind, or maybe they're asking about mankind with the responsibilities of the Jew? And I'll, the word that they use is Adam. There's another word for mankind. Uh, perhaps you've heard the word Enosh. It's a word for mankind in Hebrew as well. Mm-hmm. It's possible, uh, Deborah, that when it says Adam here, it might indeed be referring to Jews. Well, and we know that these are two Jewish schools arguing. So maybe for them, they're arguing uh, more on, on, on the kind of people that they're dealing with, right? Um, but what is going on? I, I made a list of like 10, 10 questions uh, from this Talmud. And uh, I, I obviously remember two and a half years of debate. Can you imagine? Obviously, the Talmud doesn't tell us the length of the debate for no reason. Obviously, what they're telling us here is there's a lot to talk about, right? It's not like they just hashed over the same points again and again. So why, so what, what's there to argue? Oh, what's, what are they even arguing about? Define what created means. Is it what she's saying? Or yeah. Well, she's saying what question is oh, who we're talking in, about. In their argument. Is it? Oh. Do, they, do they define that in their argument? No, it doesn't tell us anything. Do they say what the resolution was after two years? Oh, yes. So the resolution was after two years. <laughs> after two, no, because sometimes... Maybe we can reverse engineer it. Yeah, well, well, sometimes, sometimes the uh, the arguments of the Talmud um, remain an argument. Means the, the the two sides do not reach an agreement. Which, by the way, I want to say, uh, one of the questions that I had is that it doesn't tell us who says what, right? One opinion says it's better for us to not be created. One opinion says it's better for us to yes, indeed, be created, to be created. It doesn't tell us which one's Hill and which one's Shammai. But I, I thought maybe perhaps because in the end there is no conclusion 
I'm saying there is, there, is, there is an agreement. It doesn't really matter what the argument was. But that's another way, to, another question to ask. If, if there was a conclusion, then there really is no argument, right? Hello. If there really is no argument, the Talmud should have cut out this whole two and a half year description of, uh, of, of the argument to just tell us that, oh, they both agreed that it's better for us to have not been created. Yeah, but the, the process of getting to your conclusion is important. Well, it doesn't tell us the process. But so it tells us there so that we can figure it out. Well, it does give us, it does give us, it does give us the resolution. It doesn't tell us why it got there. Did they give arguments for both sides at all? I'm sure they did. It's two and a half years. I, I presume that they weren't arguing based upon nothing. Would, would that be a really important facet to know if we were to discuss this? I, I think so, but I, I think that I think that we can reverse engineer it a little bit, um, especially when we look at the uh, at the conclusion. What does it say? It says that. Um, well, let, let, let's let's analyze the argument. I guess I, I think this would be better if everyone was able to see these words in front of us. But uh, I'll repeat it again, just for clarity's sake. One opinion said it's preferable for someone to have not been created more than to be created. And the other position is the opposite. It's preferable of them to be created more than to not be created. So it's not a question, is it better or worse? It's a question, which one is better? It means they're both good, which one's preferable? Which is also a bizarre way to ask the question. They're both, it, the question assumes that it is indeed better for us or there is, there is a benefit of us, yes, to, to, be, to be created. There is a benefit of us to not be created. Well, which one's more preferable? Is it time dependent? Like, there are some times where you're just like in a really horrible state, and you're like, why was I created? Or there are other times where like life is great, and you're like, this is a fantastic existence. I'm so glad that life exists. There, are they time dependent? Well, and, and time dependent, but it's all, not only time dependent, it's, it's to be individual dependent, right? Some people have fantastic lives. Mm-hmm. And some people have miserable lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wouldn't you think? It, 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 don't you think maybe we should drill down and say, well, for some people, it's better to be created because they have very productive lives, they have wonderful families, they have tremendous achievements in every area of their of their focus, uh, spiritually, physically, everything. And some people know they're just failures in life, and for those people, what a waste! <laughs> they shouldn't, should shouldn't have been created. Right? They 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 regressed, so to speak, in life. Um, but the question also assumes that you could even have the choice between the two. That, I think that's <laughs> one of the fundamental questions. Like, the, and, uh, and I think Israel uh, touched upon this. Is like this is not relevant to us at all. Like we, we are existing now post facto, right? All of us are, have been created by dint of the fact that we're sitting here talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. No. So what? What's the whole value of this discussion? Well, it's going to take us two and a half years to find out. <laughs> We're gonna be here a long time, honey. Settle down. <laughs> Deciding huh? how many kids to have. Deciding how? What do you mean? Well, if if it's a mitzvah to have so many kids, well, we'll perform the minimum. But if it's preferable to not be created, well, then we don't want to bring too many kids into this. Ooh. And not only if that's the conclusion. But if it's preferable to be created, then it's like right, right. But so what you're saying is that 
from the Talmud's conclusion, from Hill and Shammai, they finally agreed that it's better for someone to not be created, well, then we should say, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't have so many kids because every kid is just, it's just, it's just, it's a detriment for the child. Wait, so, so, so the conclusion was that it's better to not? Yeah, which is bizarre, no? Wait, I thought there wasn't a conclusion. No, they, they ultimately, uh, they ultimately agreed that it's better for some, for them, for them to not be created. Oh, there's just no reasoning why they came to that conclusion. Better to does not being created mean something? What's huh? not being created? I don't know. That's another good question. What does it mean? It's better for me than for creative? Well, if I wasn't created, there would be no me, right? But why? Maybe it would. Huh? Maybe it would be How could I exist if I wasn't created? What would exist? Is it, is, it, is it a question of perfection? What does it mean that a human exists? Well, isn't there... Not that we have empirical data to go off of, but isn't there this concept that souls are already created? But who says we don't have empirical data on that? Okay, well maybe we do. I think okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that you're. I think that this is probably something that's going to open the discussion a little bit. I think that it's possible for us to have some sort of existence and not necessarily be human or mankind or Jew or in this current iteration of existence, of life. Means if we say, like we do, and this is a, uh, a principle, an overarching principle of Jewish philosophy, and clearly Bishama Hill believed it, that the soul is eternal. So if it's eternal and it exists before being inserted into a physical body and afterwards, right? of course, everyone, you have to believe that as a Jew, then maybe if we weren't created and we wouldn't be merged, fused with a body, our soul would still exist. And then our soul, perhaps, is better off for it to not be in, in, in thrusted into, into a body. And even though there's a benefit and a drawback of being part of a, a part of humanity, what's the benefit? You change. You become... Well, you have the potential. You don't being know able to change. Being able to think of who you are. The thinking part. To, well, to think, but who cares about if you think? I think that's who I am. I understand. Yeah, but we're not. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I know you're French. I know that means a lot to you. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you. <laughs> are we even you from last week? <laughs> so, uh, that was Descartes, right? Mm-hmm. So, why are we questioning something that God gave? Booyah, I love that question. That? This is a question that's from our perspective, well, right? Why, why would we question something that God did? I mean, God made us, so why would we question whether God did something right or wrong? God, obviously, God. he's the one who said, by, like we say, we're all here, right? Man is, man is this, is, this is all academic for us, right? And God clearly voted that it's better for us to yes be created. Or maybe not. Maybe it's better for God for us to be created, but not better for us. Is that possible? Doesn't he create Could, things yes, to but be doesn't, destroyed? Huh? Doesn't he create things to be destroyed? That's kind of like the... But it, that sounds depressing, right? God's out to get us. We don't believe that. And I'll tell you, I have some source of that. I have some source material about that. We have the Talmud, uh, famous Talmud about Rabbi Akiva. And he gives us a slogan. A slogan that's one of the slogans that has been uh, uttered by millions of Jews for thousands of years. 
called the Abu Rahman Latabavid, which means all that God does is for the best. So if all that God does is for the best, and he made us, and we're saying that's not that's not suboptimal, it's for the worst. Again, it's a discussion of perfection. If we're created, we're taken from that state of perfection of existence to a non perfected state, and we have to work towards that perfection again. Is that the discussion they're having? Well, is so that. We're created as a body to try and get back to where we were before. Well, we're not. I wouldn't say we're created as a body. Well, we're created and put into the body. The body by the fusion of the body and soul, right? Right, right. right. Uh, and and that presents certain opportunities, certain benefits. What benefits? What benefits does it improve? I mean, if you're a soul, let's assume we're a soul. Okay, let's try to divest ourselves of our body. Now, not in the literal sense. No, we don't want to go there yet. Uh, but let's let's imagine that you were an unadulterated soul, right? You're totally pure. Talmud says, what does a soul look like if you were to just isolate it from from the body entirely? It's pure. It's like it's like an angel. We mentioned, spoke about this previously. It's like an angel. So you have this element of pure spirituality, and suddenly you're now enveloped in a body which is clearly not so pure, and clearly not so spiritual, and, and is interested in a lot of things that the soul uh, is repulsed and repelled by. How could that possibly be a benefit for the, for the soul or for the human? What's the benefit? Choice, perfection, trial by fire kind of thing, where maybe in the end you might be even better than where you started. Ooh, so we can improve. So there's something that we cannot ability to earn it. Huh? To earn it? Well, I, I think. Like I said, to prove to earn it, you're you're saying a good point, but uh, I think I think. You're saying maybe for so we could do if we, if we could do if we do to now most certainly we could do to if we were just a soul is that what you're trying to That's suggest? Saying, yeah. But I would I would argue yeah. and perhaps and say that well if we just had souls then the whole need for tikkun olam goes away. Yeah, must too. Yeah, because <laughs> if 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 the whole world is just pure souls, there's no such a thing that no contamin- contaminant factor. That's the body, or any any form of evil. Well, then what are we fixing? It's fixed. There's there's no imperfection that needs to be righted. There's no wrong that needs to be righted. Is is a, is a body requisite for a yetzerah? Well, they're linked together. Our, our body and the yetzerah are very much on the same. I would say that the body. What's the difference between the body and the yetzerah? The body is the uh, sedentary. Entity that doesn't necessarily propel us to sin, but is very, uh, a very uh, agreeable to sin, as opposed to the 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 is not a, is not an essential element of who we are. Rather, it's a force that tries to compel us to sin. So, but so, either way, they're so both the soul in the state before it's placed in a body to be born doesn't have that. Doesn't have what at all. It's it's pure and has no evil desire at all. Absolutely, no struggle with anything. Nothing. So that goes back to the. That's why the Talmud is the Maybe you guys have we mentioned this before. I'm sure um, there's a famous Talmud which says something very bizarre that a child in utero knows the entire Torah. Right. Everyone's heard that. Yeah. 
But what happens? Huh? They slap. They slap. Who slaps the child? The angel. The angel. The angel. Well, what's the angel doing? Why would the angel slap a child? Who hits children? <laughs> what kind of angel like smacks children? It's their job. <laughs> what does that mean? Smacking children. Your job is to smack children. kids. Yes. Super crazy. It's your job. You let to hit children. What is this thing? We we just accept this as canon. That there's this angel whose job is to slap children? Doesn't that seem weird? Well, it's like the nurse that slaps it to get it breathing. It's part of the process. <laughs> and the process makes the child forget the entire Torah. It's a pretty bad process. <laughs> isn't, there a better, isn't there a better line of work? <laughs> Don't you think? Well, birthing could be done by zipper, but, you know, it's not... Pull it out, So what's going on? We have this soul. Soul knows the whole Torah. With this angel who slaps her. Where's the child? Where's the child? Who knows? Where? Yeah. Mouth. Right here. Why does slap the back? Can I slap on the hiney? Can I slap on the back? Can I slap on the that's, cheek? That's a creative process. It works. Is it not? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can tell me more. What's speech? Speech is... Do you have thought? That was, that was the Targum yeah. way of saying it, right? We were created as speakers. That's right. You right, need right, callbacks right. here, guys. You guys do listen, I guess. We try. Um, we find, we find, uh, and I'll just repeat it for those maybe who don't remember or weren't there. We find that in, in the Torah, we, that a man is defined as a speaker. Right? In, in the Targum, as you mentioned. When it says, and God made man a living being, the Targum translated as a ruch memalo, a speaking being. Why? Because speech is the touch point of body and soul. Speech is the element that has some physical attributes to, to it. You know, there's the sounds and there's the ways, you know, we shape our mouth and guttural and teeth and tongue and everything. And then there's something that's inexplicable, something that just disappears, something that's not um, empirical, right? It's not, it's, it's not that you can capture it really and measure it, right? Once you say something, it's gone. So it, it's this hybrid. It, it, and who, what else do we know that's this hybrid? Humans are also a hybrid because we have half body, half soul. But where the two meet, the two touch in our speech. What the angel is doing in this episode of the Talmud, what he's doing is he's marrying body and soul. More precisely, he is uh, thrusting the influence of the soul on the child. Now, what ha- uh, the influence of the body? Sorry, on the, on the child. Well, what happens if you have a soul without a body? Well, you have something as pure as the angels. Something that's totally. Spiritual, something totally uncontaminated. That entity does not need instruction in Torah. That entity knows the entire Torah. So that's why the child in utero doesn't have yet the forces of the Yetzirah. Comes along the angel, hits them in the mouth, right? Touch point, body and soul. Suddenly the influence of the body, the Yetzirah, is all right there. And then voila, of course he forgets the whole Torah. Why is that? The moments when they were pretty evil. I'm sorry? When they were still in, in the uterus. Well, <laughs> that's how they were studying, like this. Yeah. <laughs> you go to yeshiva and see how people study. It's like there's so many hand gyrations that, uh, you know. I love the idea of 
and the feet too. Really into it. There's uh, an interesting, another interesting Talmud, by the way, that talks about a child in utero not having Yitzhak. As we know, because if you did have the Yitzhak, the child in utero wouldn't be able to study the whole Torah because the influence of the evil would already be there. And then, uh, this is one of the debates that uh, Antoninus, the Roman emperor, had with Rabbi Judah the Prince. Um, most likely, it's Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who became the Roman emperor in the year 161. And he was very friendly to the Jews, unlike many of his predecessors, as we well know, unfortunately. Uh, and he had a special relationship with Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was the leader of the, of the Jews at the time, was the Nasi, the head of the, head of the Sanhedrin, etc. Uh, and one of the debates that they had is, when does a child get a Yetzirah? When does a child get the inf- influence of the evil inclination? And uh, they ultimately concluded that it is from birth, not from conception. And the proof, the proof, the scriptural proof to this idea is brought from the verse in Genesis. The verse in Genesis is where God's talking to Cain, and he tells him, uh, at the entrance, sin crouches. Thus, um, the Talmud employs that to say that at the entrance of the world, child's entering the world, sin's right there. That's where the child gets the opportunity since. Suddenly there's an, there's an interest in sinning. Why? Because beforehand, prior to that, well, that's just the soul. Just the soul has no interest in, in sinning. Comes along the influence of the evil inclination, and now there's opportunity to sin. The first thing to do is complain. Start crying. <laughs> I have a question about that. Yes, so go ahead. Esau and uh, Jacob in the womb, weren't they fighting and blah, blah, blah? That's one of the best questions I've ever heard. It's a great question. And uh, there's another Talmud that talks about... Um, a mom on Yom Kippur. So it gives two stories, two parallel stories. A mother, one other mother, an expectant um, woman on Yom Kippur, and she's fasting on Yom Kippur, and suddenly she gets this incredible craving. She wants to eat. She's like, oh, ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. And they're worried that if she doesn't eat, she's going to lose the baby. So they go to the rabbi. You ever heard this Talmud? I mean, I imagine that she's about to eat. She's pregnant. Well, let's finish the story here. She goes to the rabbi, and she says, listen, I'm pregnant, and, and I have this crazy craving, and I feel like if I don't eat, I'm, gonna, I'm going to lose the baby. So the rabbi takes her and, and whispers into her ear, today's Jim Kippur. And suddenly the baby stops, whatever, influences her, <laughs> she's fine, the rest of Jim Kippur. And the rabbi's so impressed... And he says, oh, he quotes a verse in scripture that says, oh, I'm, that I knew you were righteous even before you were born. And then the Talmud tells us the postscript that this child became one of the great rabbis. And then it breeds another story, same story, woman Yom Kippur, she's fasting, she has the craving, they go to the rabbi, the rabbi whispers in the ear, today's Yom Kippur, and the child persists, and the woman has to eat, and the rabbi declares a scripture that people are sinful even before they're born. And the child ultimately became this renowned uh, uh, criminal. Give his name, with his name, or what he did. He was, he was some guy who used to hang out in, in uh, intersections and, 
and, and terrorize the passerby. So that's the Talmud. Go ahead. Also, another one where it was talking about every time she would walk by the house of study. Right, so that's the, that's the question. Every time that's right. So, so that, that's Ben's question. So that there, obviously, there was this draw. Yes. Yes, so um, that's, ben, that's Ben's question from Jacob, and that's Jacob and Esau. Yeah. So Rebecca's pregnant, she got twins, and every time the, the, the verse tells us that the, the child, children are fighting, and Rashi tells us, the Talmud quotes, that every time they pass the house of scholarship, Jacob wants to leave, and they pass the house of idolatry, and suddenly Esau's pining to exit. And the question is, wait a minute, if child gets the Yetzirah at birth, and in utero, there is no drive to sin, well then, it seems that we see in two stories, not just yeah. one. I mean, that, what I did is, I, I said your question is a legitimate question. So let me tell you what the answer is. Uh, the answer is, um, some of the answers. Or, um, um, of course. <laughs> I'm making it up on the spot, right? <laughs> um, like this. When we... When we, when, we, when we evaluate someone, like, do you give someone a test? And it's 10 questions, 10 points per question, what they score of 100. Right? That's how we evaluate. Right? Take the driving test. You know, how, you know how, many, how many mistakes did you make? How many points did you have? Did you pass? Did you fail? Right? That's how we work. We measure uh, results. The way God works, God doesn't measure results. What God measures is uh, uh, relative results. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, the very first um, documented episode of a near-death experience is in the Talmud. And the Talmud tells of this young scholar who died and was brought back to life and had visions of what happened. And I don't know if you know about this, but there's this uh, mounting empirical evidence of, uh, of people that died and then they came back, they were revived, and they tell remarkable tales of what they saw, what they experienced, and they were able to see what was happening, and they were able to see conversations in the other room, and it's pretty remarkable. Some guy wrote a book, a whole bunch of books, Life After Life, uh, either way. What was the guy's name? The guy who wrote Life After Life? No, the, the first life death experience. Uh, in it's in the Talmud, it's in... Um, uh, Baba Basra 10b. We can look it up. I, was, I, I don't remember his name. Baba Basra is the, one of the books of the Talmud. Uh, Tom, get the Baba Basra. Get the Baba Basra. <laughs> I need Baba Basra 1. Uh, the word Baba in Aramaic means. Uh, no, that would be Bavel. Uh, Bava means uh, a gate. I mean, and there was, like, there are three books of the Talmud. One's called Baba Kama, one's called Baba Metziah, one's called Baba Vasa, which means the first gate, the middle gate, and the last gate. And because these three books deal with essentially one topic, and there was too much material to be broken up into, it to be put into one book, they broke it up into three separate books and called it the first, the second, and the third. First, the middle, and the last. And they called it the first gate. Either way, Boavastra is the last gate. And on page 10b, it tells us the story. So while TJ is trying to find the book, I'll tell you what it actually says. 
what it says is that the guy came back and they said, what do you see? And he said, I saw an upside down world. Everything's the opposite. What I saw was, I saw those that are high are low. Those that are low are high. What does that mean? Is it people are like... <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean high? What do you mean low? Um, so the uh, mainstream understanding is there's more, maybe more than one way to understand this. This statement is that in this world, who do we value? The overachievers or the achievers, the people that have the great successes, um, and the people that are that are not so successful, right? So they're they're low. They're not they're not highly regarded. In, the, in, in God's world, well, then it could be the opposite. People that are high over here are low over there. Why? Because God's not necessarily looking at, at absolute results. Rather, relative results. But what does that mean? That means is, if someone was able to achieve um, something, I don't know, let's, 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 give, let's give numbers, make this easier to understand. If someone's able to achieve 100 units of greatness in their lives, uh, if they maximize and they achieve 75 well then they're failures because they did 25 less than they could have as opposed to the guy who had a 50% cap 50% ceiling and maximize that well that person is a great success and if you look at him and we look at the guy we say this guy's 75 and this guy's only 50 well who's greater Right? Because we are not capable of having, we don't have all the, all the data uh, to be able to understand what someone really accomplished in their lives. Uh, but that's not the way God works. Now, how does this answer your question, Ben? How does this answer your question? How does that answer my question? It doesn't, right? It doesn't. Not yet. Yeah. So like this. Let's assume, let's assume that certain people have certain tendencies, right? Innate tendencies towards sin. Innate tendencies towards Towards sin. And certain people have innate tendencies towards um, uh, towards righteousness, and that's actually not a product of the Yitzhar Ra Yitzhar Tov. It's just a product of what their soul is like, what the level of the soul is like, what the influence of, the, of, of 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 their body, but not necessarily uh, the reality of their body. Not necessarily a drive. It's just where are they holding, so to speak? Did they get a very high soul, a very powerful soul, a very potent soul? Or maybe they got a little weaker soul. Maybe they got the leftover soul. But can't you, can't you get the previous generation's model, you know? <laughs> exactly. You just scraped one up, whatever. <laughs> cleaned it up and just... Wash that off. That's right. Um, and therefore, some person might have a tendency to sin. Some people might, might spend their lives as sinners. But even a sinner, well, we look at incremental or, or, or um, relative growth or regression, not absolute numbers. So let me give you guys another example. Let's say someone grows up in a family of rabbis. And all they know from childhood is that you were fill in the morning and you pray three times a day and you observe the Shabbat. And they know they don't never heard of anything otherwise, right? So now they observe the Shabbat, right? Is that a mitzvah? Yes. Is that expected of them? Yes, of course. Is that a challenge for them? No, they've been doing it every Shabbos of their lives. Contrast that with the person who grew up in a family that, yes, they were Jewish, but they had a Christmas tree as well. And yes, they would show up to the synagogue once or twice a year. And the idea of Saturday, of, of Shabbat being off limits for work, was asinine. 
that person observing Shabbat, what does that mean? That's a life-changing dedication, right? That's something where they have to kind of work really hard to get, right? That's not something that's self-understood. It's not something that, 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 that they would never consider otherwise. Thus, for that person, even though the action is the same, two people observing the Shabbat, right? It's the same. You look at it from, uh, from the outside. You don't know where they're coming from. Therefore, you don't know how to value that one of them is a tremendous act of, of dedication, of commitment. And the other one is something that they would have done regardless. It's something they would never consider to not do. Thus, and, and, that's, and, and we can't take that into account because we don't know. We don't know someone's capabilities. We don't know where they kind of got their uh, beginning. You know, at what rung of the ladder did they start their journey? So we cannot measure the success of or and or failure of someone's spiritual life. We can't. God can. So let's say this child, right? The mom's uh, the, the the mom is with a whisper into the mom's ear. Today's Yom Kippur. The child says, "Oh, it's Yom Kippur. I'm not going to compel my mom to sin," and the child's righteous. What what it, all it means is that he started off as being righteous. Does that mean that? All that means is that his bar is much higher. He's judged more strictly. Talmud even goes, out, it goes and says that tzaddikim nidon chutasaira, which means, in a language that we understand, righteous people are judged more harshly than wicked people. Righteous people are judged with very little margin for error. The margin for error of a righteous person is tichut hasaira, as wide as a hair, as the as the as the a breadth of a hair. Is that very wide? Of course not. Well, what does that mean? It means that the greater you are, the more culpability you're going to have for your misdeeds. So this person, yes, he started off really high, but what does that mean? It means that more is expected. And that means that that greatness is not as valuable as someone who had to struggle to get that. So the point is that, yes, of course, not everyone starts off in the same, in the, you know, at the same, of course, we all know that, right? That's obvious uh, in every way. Obviously, you know, some people are born into very uh, fortunate socioeconomic levels, and we recognize that. And for someone who is, let's say, uh, a self-made man, quote-unquote, well, that's something we admire, right? More than the person who inherited it. Well, why? He's got more money, right? <laughs> right? That doesn't make any sense, right? Why do we value the person who did it himself, right? Scraped the bottom, right? Just made himself because that is something where the change is dramatic and the change is therefore admirable. Suppose someone who just inherited it by dint of their antecedent dying. Not much of an accomplishment. So yes. And, and that, that's the way God works as well. Um, obviously it's hard for us. We don't know. We're not able to calculate another person's spiritual capabilities. We're not able to calculate another person's challenges. But we don't know. Only God knows. So we can't really judge other people. This is the reason why we don't judge people, by the way. Mishnah says... Don't judge someone else, right? Until you reach his place. What does that mean? Unless you actually know exactly what this person's life's been, 
unless you know what their family's like, unless you know what their capabilities are, what the circumstances of every action, you can't judge them. Because who's to say that you're better off? Yes! In absolute numbers, you might be better off. You're more righteous. You're doing more mitzvahs. For sure. In absolute numbers. But in relative numbers, right? you didn't reach his place. You have no idea all the backstory that brought that person to where they are and what they did. So for you to judge them, right? who to judge? Only God can judge. Only God is able to take in all the factors. So to answer your question, Jacob started off as righteous. Esau started off as wicked. True. Did that necessarily condemn Esau to a life of total wickedness? No. Did it mean that his potential for greatness was less than Jacob? Of course. Of course it did. In absolute numbers. In relative numbers, no. I'll give you guys another example of this. Maimonides tells us, I'll ask you guys a question. We read yesterday in the synagogue the third to last verse in the Torah or second to third to last verse in the Torah. I think it's the third or fourth to last verse in the Torah. And there will never arise in Israel a prophet like Moses who speaks to God face to face. So if you had to distill this sentence, uh, this verse into one sentence, what does this mean? Will there ever be a prophet like Moses in Israel? Yes? Yes or no? No. Never. Well, and the fact that the Torah tells us that, that, what does that mean? It will never happen. Right? Okay. Exhibition, uh, exhibit one. Exhibit A. Exhibit B. Maimonides. Maimonides was very, very, very familiar with that particular sentence. Very familiar. He was an expert. And yet he writes in the book of Mada, which is the first of the 14 books of Yad Chazaka, or otherwise called the Mishnah Torah, multiple names for one book, or one series of books. And Maimonides writes in the Laws of Tshuva, Laws of Repentance, every person who comes to this world, not just Jews, everyone, can be as great as Moses. Wait a minute, uh, Maimonides, you forgot the verse in the end of Deuteronomy. It says that no one will ever be like Moses in prophecy. Did he forget it? No, of course not. Now, how is it possible that every Joe Schmo on the street that you meet? I think we talked about this. We might have talked about it. I don't think, I don't, I don't think we did. Detail, yeah, it was a maybe there's a lot of tangents, as you may well know. Every guy, right? Every. Shlomil and Shlomazel, who's pumping gas in New Jersey, right? Everyone could be as great as Moses. Really? That sounds asinine. So there's one saying, in one sense, nobody can be greater than Moshe, but in another sense. So, so the difference is in absolute numbers, in absolute prophecy, in absolute greatness, no one can reach Moses' level. But Moses had a head start, and Moses had much more potential than we could ever dream of. However, that doesn't mean that we too do not have a certain modicum of potential that we can achieve. Thus, how do I become as great as Moses? Well, in absolute numbers, I'll never become as great as Moses. I will never become a prophet. I know that for sure. I will never become a prophet. And I certainly will never become a prophet like Moses. So how could I, I can't reach Moses' level in absolute terms. However, Moses had potential. 
he maximized it. I have an infinitesimally smaller potential, but I too can maximize whatever I've got, whatever opportunities I got. If you account for whatever state I came into being, right, whatever rung I was on in this proverbial ladder, and calculate all the factors that contribute to my life and my existence, well, that I can, I can maximize that. Right? Whatever, whatever it is up to me, I can maximize. That's what Maimonides means, that every human, every being, every human that comes into the world, all eight billion to be as great as Moses. Right? Of course, in absolute numbers, they can't. But with regards to the capability that they were granted, they can't. They can give 100%. They give 100%. Well, they equaled Moses. Thus, your question, you're right. I, I agree. Jacob started off as being righteous. Esau was wicked. <coughs> Did that mean that Esau had no chance to become great? Of course not. Everyone can become great. Everyone. And I'll even dare say, <coughs> dare say, don't hold me accountable for this, dare say, it's possible for someone to do a sin and have that considered, considered a mitzvah. I'll give you a crazy example here. Let's say someone is born into a life or with characteristics of being a murderer or being a sinner. Okay? That's possible, right? Like Esau started up as wicked. It's possible a lot of people have... You know, have a uh, have the the deck stacked against them. <laughs> now, let's say they sin, but what for them is a mitzvah? The mitzvah is in relative terms. At that level, at the level that they're holding at, with all the circumstances that go into creating the arena of conflict that's going to dominate their lives, for them a mitzvah could be to do a less egregious sin. That would be their mitzvah because the doing you know, not sinning at all. Well, that's not at all in the uh, you know that's not that, 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 that's not at all part of their realistic uh, free will choices. So it's possible, ironically, I'll, I'll, I'll paint this picture and make it as bizarre as possible. It's possible from God's perspective for one person to sin and that's a mitzvah. For another person to do a mitzvah and that's a sin. How is that? But wait, wait a minute. He's doing a mitzvah. Yes, he's doing a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah we'd have done anyhow. Because there's no way this person... His free will choice was not do a mitzvah or not do a mitzvah. It was do a mitzvah with incredible dedication and commitment. Or do a mitzvah and just do it and not think about it. That's their free will choice. It's not good versus evil. That's their good and evil. And thus they did a mitzvah, but that's their evil choice. And the other guy, it was the, the, the sinner, he was going to sin. It wasn't sin or not sin. It was going to be sin egregiously or sin in a less, in a more moderate fashion. Thus, their sinning in a more moderate fashion is their mitzvah. I'll give you an example. You're, 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 you're skeptical, as usual, of what I'm saying. You're saying there's a level of sin. Of course. Yeah. Of course. A relative. Of course. Like a murder and... Okay, murder fine. Murder versus... Oh, but also, remember, I'm no, not, not, not even saying that. Bacon versus murder. Right, but... but, but. <laughs> well, okay, fine, fine. 
no, but no, but no, no, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily different action. Even the same action, it's 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 what's the intent as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, God God takes into account not only our actions, our thoughts, our intentions, uh, our speech. All that goes into the equation. So it's possible for someone to do a sin and be delighted in sinning, and that's much worse than someone doing the same exact sin but feeling guilty or feeling. You know, feeling bad, or you know, or having some sort of, you know, moral conscious uh, 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 problem with with the sin. After communion, or during, or even during, even during, it's like (laughs) (laughs) no, but uh, no, but that idea, uh, the idea. uh, I'll give you an example here. It's like um, when someone is sinning. Well, then they're contradicting what the Almighty instructed them to do. Correct. Right. So it's a certain, uh, uh, it's a certain, um, just uh, a lack of awareness of God. Right. That's much worse than eating bacon. Right. Well, what if you're eating the bacon, but you're still aware of God, and that's influencing your behavior? You're still not going to change, maybe yet. That's worse. Oh, well, I, I think I, I think you, I hear what you're arguing. You're arguing away. If you were aware of God, then you shouldn't have sinned. No, I, I'm not necessarily true. Sometimes, sometimes someone's not at the point where they have the fortitude to overcome their inclinations quite yet. But God is not totally ignored. God's still there, and that causes a certain, you know, bad feeling to accompany the sin, and that's a good thing. That's a reflection of of, of their awareness and mindfulness of God. I'll give you an example here, Ben, to just uh, if you're ignorant on the subject. Well, I wouldn't know. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> um, like, what like if someone let? Well, so the like Talmud. The one thing, like yeah, I think that, it, the toilet paper. Never saw that before. Where you can't toy, tear the toilet paper. Yeah. So pieces. I was like, what the heck is this? So, <laughs> so there's a. Uh, doesn't know. They're not liable, right? If you totally don't know, like the first time you ever... Like, yeah, so the, the Talmud even talks about someone who's a tinok shenishba. Um, tinok means a child. Shenishba, which means was captured. So Talmud deals with what happens when you have a Jewish child who's captured. Kidnapped. Little baby's kidnapped. And obviously grow is a Jewish child, but grows up in a, by his cap, captive, not aware at all that they're even Jewish. Well, what that person's sinning all day and all night that doesn't even know that you're Jewish, right? What a terrible sinner. Evil. Well, no. The child's not necessarily culpable for what they don't know. Now, child's still Jewish. The sins are still sins. True. Uh, but the culpability, uh, you can't, how can you blame someone for doing something? That, maybe you could blame them for not investigating. Uh, but if it's something which is not even, they don't even know what a Jew means, they never heard the word, right? Never, what does that mean? You have people like that. You can read about people that they disturbed. They found that they're Jew. They didn't know what that means. They don't know that there's implications of being Jewish. And then how could you possibly be blamed for that? Yeah, but then it goes back to this whole remorse thing again. If he's sinning and knows about God, he should know that he, and he starts feeling remorse for a sin that he's committing, wouldn't it be better? And isn't there an argument in the Talmud about this somewhere? Where there's an argument about, is it better that he know God and sin or not know God and, and sin or not know the sin or something. I don't, well, we're not talking... Well, yeah, but maybe. But we're not talking... That wasn't... You're changing 
you're changing your what example. What if it's like a compulsive eating disorder? You know, compared to somebody who is satisfied with just eating bread and water all day, every day. And somebody with somebody who's just has to eat all these different foods and then keeping kosher is really hard because they didn't grow up that way. And, no, but I mean... They, but they, but they TJ, TJ, you changed your example. Let me tell you, let me demonstrate here. You Originally, you were saying... Uh, or I had said that it's worse for someone to sin and disregard God. That's much worse than someone sinning and still being aware and feeling guilty about God. In the third oh, case, yeah, okay. now, you, now you're saying, well, what if someone never heard of this? Right, right. Okay, so okay, so, okay. so, so, so I think it's okay. obviously worse to disregard God than it would be for someone uh, either to be mindful of God and certainly to not be aware that this thing even exists. Because if someone cannot be held culpable, liable if they're ignorant, like like we said, maybe they, they the, their 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 sin is their lack of investigation uh, into the matter. But if someone would never even in a million years imagine that they were Jewish, uh, then how could you blame them? Of course, and that's obviously worse than someone who knows they're Jewish, knows it's prohibited, and knows that God exists, but doesn't just ignores it and disregards it. Um, dubious, more. No, they no. Both of them know that it's wrong, and one of them disregards it. Uh, okay, okay, gotcha. Uh, well, and the other one, he doesn't disregard it, but he's 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 not at the point where he's able to overcome it. I'll give you an example, just on the flip side of this, um, to just remove any shred of uh, skepticism that that bends the last. Why? Moses, <laughs> right? But what did Moses do? What did Moses do? Moses did a lot of things, right? What are we referring to? Okay. Moses, he is the rock, right? So what happens? What happens to the rock? What happens? Everyone's so thirsty. And he gathers all the Jewish people around. He says, look what the Mighty is going to prepare for you. He takes his staff. He hits the rock once. A little trick comes out. He gives it another bang, and suddenly the rock has enough water to feed or to thirst. Not the first. To quench. To quench the thirst. Uh, I don't think there's a word, by the way, to feed or to, to give drink, but there's no really word to, uh, to, to quench the thirst of millions. Okay. Out of a rock. Now, if you and I saw that, we would just be mind-blown, flabbergasted, right? Uh, and we would, we would have no doubt whatsoever. We would be totally accepting of Moses as a prophet and God. We would just we'd be totally on board, right? What does God tell Moses? And this is repeated again. Uh, so once in Exodus, uh, and once, we just read it a few weeks ago, in Deuteronomy. What does he tell him? That he didn't glorify him. Well, yes, he didn't glorify him, and thus, what did he do? Oh, take him out. He sinned. Well, take, well, that's what, no, you get mixed what up. What are you talking about? You get mixed up. Huh? You can't enter the land. Exactly. Now, he tells him, and, and both places, he tells Moses and Aaron, you didn't, uh, you didn't sanctify me. You didn't do it, what's called a Kiddush Hashem. And instead, he did a Chil Hashem, which is a desecration of God's name. And therefore, you get punished. Can't go to Israel. So, it's, it's mentioned twice, right? Uh, we read it just a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, whatever it was, uh, in the Torah, where God finally tells Moses, it ain't happening, you're not going to the land of Israel, don't even ask me anymore, it's done, you sinned. What was your question, guys? We spoke about this a few weeks ago, your yeah. paper. There's sin, and what, what happens when you sin? You repent. What happens when you repent? Sin's absolved. Right. Right? We know that. Moses knew that as well. The question I'm That's right, we spoke about this. Right? 
Why would a Moses repent and then you, you repent, you absolve the sin, you go into the land of Israel? Go ahead, repeat. Well, you said he did do it, but he asked, and God said, you can't ask again. Or the no, so I didn't repeat. I, I, that I spoke about when we spoke about, uh, about prayer. That's right. Right, 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 right. So, so that, was, that was the guards of prayer. The Moses prayed 515 times, and God tells him, you pray one more time, I'll have to listen to you, but not destroy the world. That's what I mentioned by prayer. Yeah, yeah. That's prayer. Let, let, now, 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 forget about prayer for a second. Repentance. But his sin was absolved, but you're not... How do you, you know? If it was absolved, resolved, but then the consequences... From, but it's still the... the, the, the the judgment of God, he can't. He's, he's but if the sin God, is gone, then the consequences God. ought to be gone as well. No. If you're Why not? If you're forgiven, if the sin's gone, the sin's gone. Never happened. What, what if you say sorry between pulling the trigger and that bullet hitting? Well, it's still going to hit. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. You can't so, undo so, the consequences. So what are you, so what are you saying? There's an yeah. action and reaction. Guys, that's a good question. So disregard it. So your question is a good question, right? So what if, what if someone? How can someone re- repent for killing someone? Well, really, they can't, right? Because he can't undo it. What? I'm sorry? Was I didn't hear what you said. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I thought it was just your soul, but it was still more from Well, body. that's what you would think. The Talmud tells us that someone someone repents out of love of God, then their sin becomes a mitzvah. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Moses loved God? Do you think he repented out of love of God? Most certainly. He could change that into a mitzvah. How come Moses didn't repent? Change it into a mitzvah. It's not a sin anymore. It never happened. There was no sin. There was a mitzvah that happened. Why would there be consequences? So Moses tried praying. And God, he prayed 550 times. God said, stop. Okay, forget about prayer. Let's do repentance. Repentance. Turn it into a mitzvah. Mazel tov. Go into the land of Israel. Unless he knows the answer. The answer is like this. And to talk about your point. What if someone kills someone? There's no way to repent. You know why? Because there's no way to bring the guy back back from the dead. And we're told that there are certain sins that are unforgivable. There's no way to repent for them. One of them is murder. Another one would be fathering a bastard. Talmud tells us. That if someone someone, uh, not only sins with illicit uh, relations, but actually produces a child out of that, well, that child is a living testament to the sin. There's no way to undo that because the sin is always there, living, breathing. So, um, so there are certain sins you can't undo, um, and we're told to tell about that there's the that the worst sin you can ever undo in your lifetime is desecrating God's name. I think the simple understanding as to why Moses didn't repent is that for Moses, this is the crucial point I want to bring back uh, to what we mentioned earlier. For Moses, when he took a nation of millions of people and brought them to a rock. And extracted enough water from the rock to quench the thirst of millions. For Moses, on his level, that was a sin. And that was such a severe sin, a sin that is considered a sin that's completely irrevocable. You cannot repent from it because it's desecrating God's name. That you can't repent for. Just like you can't repent from murder. Or father of the bastard. Now let me ask you a question. If I brought you guys outside to the rock... And I hit the rock or whatever I did. Talk to the rock, hit the rock. doesn't matter, right? I took a remote to the rock. doesn't matter what I did. Is there any kind of... Is there any situation where some human that we can imagine extracts water from the rock and that's not the greatest honoring of God's name? For sure not. For Moses, 
The fact that it could have been done slightly in a more impressive way. He didn't even touch the rock. He just spoke to the rock. Even though it's so marginally slightly better, but for Moses on his level, he opted for the sinful kind of mitzvah. Well, that's a good question. What exactly was going on over there? And, and there's so much literature to fill all those bookshelves. But didn't he say two things? So he did two things wrong. Go ahead. So he hit the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. Mm-hmm. And didn't he say, look what I'll do for you? No, uh, I don't remember what the exact verse says. But uh, either way, he's acting. God. He's acting. He, everyone knows that Moses is acting uh, as the proxy, so to speak, for God. Or as the prophet of God. Maybe that we don't, I don't think we're told that much about that Moses sinned in that area, but we are told very clearly should have hit the rock, should have spoke to the rock and hit the rock. And to us, really, is it so important? Let's look at there's water now for millions of people. Like why we're we not focusing on that? Uh, because we're talking about Moses, and when we talk about Moses, the stakes are so high. Moses is not going to sin. Yeah, so that's, as I said, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of literature in that. It's it's widely what exactly was the sin? Or, I, 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 I think it's a good question, um, and this is discussed. It's, I can innumerable um, um, commentaries in the Torah that all talk about what exactly happened. And you know, Rashi says there was multiple rocks, and, and the rock he first spoke to the rock, and then he then he then there was, but the rock was a different rock. And either way, there's a, there's a lot uh, of analysis as to what exactly. Was and if you look at the verse, God tells him take your staff and go talk to the rock. And and Moses could have in his head said, well, take the staff. And God obviously is implying that she used the staff, right? Because why else would tell me to hit the staff? And previously he ready he, he had used the staff, so maybe God right means there's a lot of reasons why Moshe could have rationalized his decision. But either way, from Moshe, right, what for us would be the mitzvah of our lifetime, a mitzvah that we can't even fathom actually doing. Uh, but if we could imagine it happening, it would be a mitzvah of such uh, transformative impact for Moshe was a sin that was irrevocable. Well, he, he spent years getting the Torah directly from God and being responsible to understand all the subtleties and the oh yeah this word specifically for this reason kind of thing. And so for, for him, that should have been mm-hmm. obvious. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if it should have been obvious, but he, he, it, it should have been there. He should have known it. And w- w- what this is really telling us is that no matter who you are, no matter what, who you are in life, no matter where you're holding in life, the scale is always balanced. For Moshe, the scale was balanced. Now, what, what were the two sides of the scale? It wasn't sin or not sin. It wasn't mitzvah or sin. What it was is do a tremendous, splendid mitzvah with absolute perfection, or do a tremendous, splendid mitzvah with almost absolute perfection. That's the scale, right? That's where he's holding, so to speak, and therefore it's balanced for him as well. Now, to bring it all the way back to what we started before we got off on this fantastic tangent, well, what does that mean? If for every human, for every human at every point in their lives, there's a scale that's balanced, and every choice that we have in this world of choices, is going to bring either a positive or negative effect on us, on humanity at large, on the world at large, on the universe, on, on this whole mission, to Olam, like you mentioned, which is the big, big picture mission, to Olam of my small little Olam, my small little world, on a little bit of a smaller scale, 
right? Every action that we do is essentially the world's fate is hanging in the balance. The, the mini world, the big world. Because everyone is at some point in this graph, so to speak, or this ladder, you know, and therefore their choices are important, are meaningful, are purposeful, are impactful. But also, it's impactful, but also the opportunity for failure is right there, ripe for happening. Perhaps what they're, what, what they're saying here, uh, in this conclusion at least, of the Talmud here, is that it's better for a person to not be given the opportunity for greatness, on one hand, because that's outweighed by the negative, the drawback of failure, which is so readily there, so, so apparent. Very pessimistic. Sounds like I think, I think there's still a lot of problems with very it. Very pessimistic. Well, yeah, there's a potential to fail. We're going to count on you failing instead of succeeding. <laughs> yeah. 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 Forget it, buddy. You shouldn't be alive. <laughs> We're not going to give you an opportunity. Well, you tell me. You tell me. Let's look, let's look, at, let's look at the world, okay? Not, not, not just today, not just Jews, everyone. And let's try to give, give a, if we can even conceive this, let's try to give like a, a, a sketch of, of history in our heads. Has there been more failure or more success in in your assessment? Depends on like your relativeness, what you're talking about. Of, of course, but um, so maybe it's hard for us to imagine. But also, it's important uh, as 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 Deborah mentioned. This is so not like, asking the question from God's perspective. It's asking the question from our perspective. So and like, per, when we are, if we are to cast judgment on humanity at large in the past couple thousand years of recorded human history. Uh, I would say, I would argue that there's a lot more failure, at least from our perspective, than success. Is there because, like, Abraham brought, you know, monotheism? Oh, yeah. So, so Abraham's the exception, or the right... The, no, he, no, but he's, but now the majority of religions believe in monotheism. Majority, majority of humanity. Yeah, right. Let's see what, what Israel has become over the past 50 years. No, I'm just saying there's been uh, like you, eat, you eat pork throughout Israel, you, uh, I mean, there's, it's a lot, it's not what it used to be. Gay parades over huh. there? Huh? So there's gay parades over there? I don't think that there was, like, a larger quantity of failure as opposed to, like, goodness. I just think that, for some reason, humanity focuses on, like, negativity. Like, if you like read the, it, the headlines? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the headlines are yeah. really good one, but, like, if you read a history textbook, like, you know, and you read the history of a country, it's all about, like, and then things were fine, and then war, and then things were fine, and then war, and mm-hmm. it's like, no one focuses when things are fine, they just focus on, like, what happened next. And because, like, but, and, and, the, and, I, and I would say, because the wars, the bad things, are really the milestones of change and transformation they in force, the direction. Yeah. They force out yeah. everything that's going on, so people to actually see what's really going on, so that, that so the world has to focus on it. Yeah. What's going on over here? Wow, this this is bad. But the majority of human existence might be good. You just don't see it in history because all that goodness is just sitting around and tending your garden and being a good parent, and <laughs> it doesn't make the history much. And then there's also trial and error. Like even in an experiment, you're going to try a million different things, and you might fail a lot, but then you'll finally get one success. But you'll have to fail before you... Okay, so let me ask you a question. So maybe the Talmud's question is just a generic default, you know? Um, yeah, you'll have some successes, but an average, an aggregate, so to speak, 
you'll have a lot more failures, right? But you have to go through the failures in order to learn what not to That's do. true. That's true. That, that's if we look at the aggregate or we look at the totality. But let me ask you a question. Someone's being born now. What are the odds that they'll be the one who butts the trend of failure? Very unlikely. So maybe, so maybe the question is not taking the successes or taking the numerous failures. It's taking the unknown and saying, is the default, the fact, you know, the facto child, what are the odds, so to speak, of them being a success? Probably relatively small to make the, at the, at the opportunity for failure. Uh, and I, I just thought of another example. I wrote it down in my notes here. Um, there is a. Wait, but why? Go ahead. Oh, uh, why? No, Maybe like, this explains like, it. Why, why would you say that someone would more likely end up as a failure than a success? There's no, okay. there's no like, empirical evidence that claims well, that. Well, okay, okay, okay. So, well, first of all, I, I think that perhaps that's what they're saying to understand in the context of what they're saying. And also, how we define success and failure is, is important for this discussion, right? The way I define success and failure, uh, I think at least for the purpose of this discussion, is certainly going to revolve around their soul, right? It's not about uh, do they have enough money to live before they died, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone dies, right? So it cannot be, in, it cannot be couched in any physical, material um, um, properties because that, those things are not, obviously not what we're discussing here. We're talking about man uh, with the uh, sensibility that we're talking about man as an eternal entity with soul and then a minor period of body that opens the door, opens the kind of worms for uh, that to head south. Um, we find in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, Mishnah in Perkevos in Chapters of the Fathers, right, which is the book of the Talmud that deals with uh, ethics and philosophy. It's a great read. Highly recommended. Uh, and it says as follows, and gives us an instruction. In, in instruction, you got a bunch of copies of them, I'm sure. So it it tells us as follows. It tells us, right? You should chase a minor's mitzvah as strongly as you would chase a major mitzvah. You should pursue by a better word, pursue a minor mitzvah as aggressively as you, as you would pursue, pursue a major mitzvah. And you should run away from sin. That's what it says. Where is that? It's, um, I think it's, oh, give me a point. I think like it's Cliff Notes. I don't know. Uh, this is not Cliff Notes. This is the whole thing. So it's probably that much commentary. Um, I think it's in chapter three. Um, maybe chapter four. There is um, the, the, my problem with with with. I never remember where things are. And here we go. Got it. And as I four two. But as I Omer as says have a says run to perform even a minor mitzvah and flee from sin. What does it tell us? You should run, you should pursue even a minor mitzvah. Don't say, oh, I'll chase the big mitzvahs. <laughs> Call me when it's a big mitzvah, not a minor mitzvah. <laughs> right? Even minor mitzvahs you should pursue. And you should flee from sin. What does that tell us? Uh, flee from sin. <laughs> 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 
Okay. Little sin, big sin, doesn't matter. Oh, but you, you chase any sin. Even you know, hunt you down any sin. Something as small, it's still better to do it than do something Okay, what else is it telling us? I'm not giving you guys. You guys should figure this out. You're just smart to figure this out. Oh, I made the pressure so much. Sorry. Uh, no, I, 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 too much, right? You have to chase a mitzvah, and you have to run away from a sin. That's what it tells us, right? What if someone is stationary? Sedentary. Not doing anything. What happens then? Sin's chasing you. Sin's chasing you, and the mitzvah's running away from you. Is that the model that it's presenting us? Is that the That's relative? The That's what it says, right? It says <laughs> you have to chase down, you have to run, ruts. Right, Pac-Man. That's a good, that's a good muscle. I'll write that down. Pac-Man. Pac-Man. That's, that makes sense. Yeah, so you, you, you constantly yeah. have to be moving. So it, it, what it tells us is like this, and I, I want to take the example of life is like a treadmill. Right? I would say you say that life's like a box of chocolates. It's like a treadmill. It really is like a treadmill. It's like if you're not progressing, if you're not improving, if you're not running and chasing, well, then you start regressing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like one of those um, descending escalators that kids love to run up and down a down escalator, right? Uh, so that's what it's like. So it's telling you that you, if you're not working actively, proactively to achieve a mitzvah, you're not going to get it. And conversely, if you're not running away from a sin, it's going to overwhelm you. Thus, if you do nothing, well, what happens? So that's what I'm saying. To, uh, that's to, to answer your question, De- uh, Deborah. I, I think in this context, it's more likely that we're going to be failures, right? Because if we do nothing, right, the the power of the default. You, uh, who has who has an iPhone here? How many iPhones do you have here? One, two, three. Okay. How many of you use Google Maps? Oh no, on iPhones. So who is anyone here to have an iPhone and use Apple Maps? No. no. Okay. So numbers are like this. It's there's four, about four hundred million. There's about four globally. There's about four hundred million. Uh, active iPhones. I think it's about 500 million. Four, between 4 and 500 million. And there's 100 million Google Maps users on iPhone. Now what does that tell you? Where you have a clearly better product, we can argue that, which is the Apple, and we have the Apple fanboy here, he'll agree. <laughs> is that right? Yes. And Apple Maps is better than... No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. So it's, it's in general and overall yes it's much much better yet you have 80% of people stick to the defaults right the power of the defaults what's the default of the human the default of the human is to sin and to not do mitzvahs ah it's neither a treadmill or a box of chocolates it's a treadmill with a box of chocolates at the end so if you go faster than the treadmill, you get a box of chocolates. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Are you teaching them this stuff every day? <laughs> Does it just come naturally? <laughs> no, he puts it in the treadmill for a box of chocolates. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> it's a lot harder to go against the, the stream. Than, it's a lot harder than, than to, to do the mitzvahs. But, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, we could drill down a little deeper here. I think that what is, or why, why is the mitzvah running away from us and the sin chasing us? Why? Isn't it fair and balanced that they should either both be chasing us, both be running away from us, or it should be neutral, right? You just told us that it should be balanced, right? Why? How is there balance where the sin is running away from us, is chasing us, and the mitzvah is running away from us? Or why is this imbalance? Why is this uh, uh, um, inefficiency, so to speak, in the system? It's balanced only if we're moving yeah. forward. Because we're moving, we're going after. But who says we're moving forward? We have to. We have to proactively chase down the mitzvah, mm-hmm. while we have to proactively run away from the sin. So clearly, if we do nothing, it then will overtake us. We'll overtake us. So, so how is it balanced? They should be either. They should be equally unattainable or equally overwhelming. Well, the universe isn't balanced. No, there's a law of entropy. In I, I I agree. I agree with that a thousand percent, and I think that that uh, that really applies here on a spiritual level as well. Uh, as well, that the your soul starts off being perfect, and then it's very likely going to get sullied and influenced by your body over the course of your life, right? And our goal is, hopefully, is to kind of bring back that same purity that our soul had before entering the world, right? That's the model. We start off as this soul that's like an angel, and now we are being uh, put in this life of conflict where invariably the body is going to overwhelm our soul, and hopefully... Through our effort and our Torah and our work and our, our sweat and tears, we're going to actually reverse the trend and bring back the 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 level that uh, or the the balance, the equilibrium that existed prior, where our soul is like the angel, and our body is not a factor. But our body is the dominant factor in this world, and that's why, and that's why in this life, because our body is dominant and our and our soul is 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 weaker. Uh, therefore, the soul, if you want to have the soul, what the soul wants, you've got to run after it. You have to do something to change the default. As opposed to the body, because it's dominant, it's in pole position, well, therefore, it has the, uh, the upper hand or the leg up. Or both. So I, I think that um, this, uh, this kind of that's, this is, I think, the simplest understanding of what the Talmud here is saying and the conclusion. I think the questions are still for that question. Like the question we said, like, hey, wait a minute. God decided to yes make us, and we're concluding that it's better for us to have not been created, and we know the principle that God does only things that are in our own best interests. Like, that's a very good question. I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, um, God does things that are good. Like, who are we to say, no, you did something bad to us? It's a very good question. Or is it the other way around? God does whatever he wants, and just because he does it, that's what defines what good is. But is it good for us or good for him? Maybe it's good for him. Good for him. Yeah, okay, well then we have to really recalibrate what we what we mean when we say that God does things that are good for that are good. It doesn't mean good for us, it means it's good for him. It's really maybe bad for us. Um, I just I really don't remember. It's not like trying to repeat or anything. Go ahead, no problem. What, what is no, it? Just, I just play around with you. Yeah. You know that, right? <laughs> what, what was the uh, um, discussion with God, with the angels, when he was creating human? Yes. So um, 
the, I think verse twelve or something like that in the entire Torah, it says Nase Adam Ketzalmed, right? It says, "Let us make man," and this is one of the big philosophical problems: is that God is a singular entity, and if we say, "Let us make man," it's obviously there's multiple there's multiple entities being discussed here. Let us plural. Um, so Rashi already tells us, and this is you know, older than uh, we could ever imagine. This idea that God's consulted with the angels. Um, and it's, I think it's that, that's a very good he, angle to approach, is that, hey, uh, maybe it wasn't so clear that, that God should create man. Right. Does he get the rationale between what the angels and God was discussing? Let's investigate that. Let me write that down here again. See, this is exactly what I wanted to get some, uh, get some feedback here, because I, that's a very good place to look. Understanding of that pluralism that Christianity kind of ran off with and did its own thing? Uh, maybe, but that's uh, esoteric, and thus, when I say esoteric, I don't mean uh, I, I don't I don't mean anything besides the fact that it is misunderstood. So, if that is that that if that does, if that, uh, I would argue that. Even the Kabbalists aren't discussing what God himself or itself is, because that's beyond the capacity of, of man to really understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it could be, what they do discuss could be something that could be easily confused, and that's why one of the reasons why these <clears throat> things should not be discussed to the uninitiated, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm sure everyone has heard, well, we don't, we don't look Kabbalah until we're 40, right? Which doesn't mean that if you're 40, you can't look Kabbalah. All that means, you know, like I see people that like, they know nothing about Torah, but they're like, oh, I'm 48, and you, who are you? You're a punk, you're 28 years old, like you, you can't learn Kabbalah. I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking this is such a joke, because uh, they know nothing about Torah. I know, uh, I, I don't know so much about Torah, but what I do know, like, dwarfs what they know, right? And they're telling me that I'm not worthy, but they are, they're implying. And I agree, I'm not worthy of, of or not, uh, to study this. Because the uninitiated are going to take it and make mistakes with it, mm-hmm. right? But my my point with that question is just that there may be um, statements like this in the Torah that well, can just be left as, "Hey, that's mystical, and we're not going to understand it." Uh, so why should mm, we? Mm, no, w- but not with regards to with the, the theology. We don't do we don't do so much. I I, I think that I think that. Theologically, we do not allow for anything besides this one entity, because it's a myth no, in the Torah. No, I, mean, I mean, why why try to explain away this pluralness in the in that? We're not well, that's, saying that's, he's talking with angels or something. Why not just say, well, he wanted to say it that way, so uh, we're not but, but, but 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 you have it you have it wrong. You're working backwards. We're not saying that he was talking to angels to answer a question. Right? We have a tradition that dates back to Moses, that that's the proper understanding of what that means. It's like translation. So I say, why would you say the word voracious means in the beginning? You know, is that our interpretation? No, that's what the word means. So we're not just trying to answer a question uh, with any plausible answer that we have. It's actually what it, what it means. It's, it's, the, it's the actual inter- uh, explanation, understanding of what that word means. So we're not, we're not, we're not, it wasn't like, oh, that's a convenient way to answer a, 
a knotty problem. That's not how it's working. It's that's actually what it means. Gotcha. And conveniently, it does answer the knotty problem as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to share with you guys, um, and I, and I like that. I'm, I'm writing this back, write, uh, writing this down because this is um, obviously there's, there was there's at least two and a half years of material uh, to discuss. Uh, and these schools had hundreds of students, so, and it wasn't just two students, uh, I would imagine. It says the whole the schools are, there's a lot to talk about. I think this is a good angle that we actually found, this idea of, of man being, not doomed, but uh, having uh, an uphill battle in, in their life. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's um, consistent with a lot of sources that we mentioned. Um, we have, I found a, a, an interpretation, an explanation of this Talmud, which was mind-blowing. And I, there's a lot of problems with it, I think, but I'll share with you guys anyhow uh, and see what you guys think. Uh, remember, we're going back to the Talmud in Erevin, 13b. It says that there was a straight debate two and a half years between the schools of Shammai and Hillel. Is it better for men to be created? Is that preferable than men not being created? Is, or perhaps it's preferable for men to, indeed, yes, be created uh, over him not being created? And ultimately, the conclusion is that it's better for them to not be created. Uh, that's better than, than, than being created, which is obviously a tongue twister. Tw- uh, tongue twister. And ultimately, it says, well, now that you're created, you should examine your actions and investigate your behavior. Um, so the Maharsha, the uh, 16th and early 17th century uh, Jewish sage, he said something which was very, very interesting. It is like this. Let's say man wasn't created. What would have happened? So we were saying, well, what is, what is man? Is man a soul? Is man nothing? Is, is, what does that even mean? Um, what he says like this is, let's, let's do the math. We have 248 positive mitzvahs, which are opportunities for greatness. And if man wasn't created, well, the man would, have, would not have this 248 opportunities. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Now we have 365 potential pitfalls in the form of sins. There's 365 different ways that someone could sin. So are there more or less, are there more opportunities to sin or more opportunities to excel or to more opportunities to have greatness? Obviously more opportunities to sin, right? 365 is more than 248. That's what it says like this. If man was created... Well, then they would have um, fulfilled, quote unquote, all 365 negative commandments. Why? Because they weren't created. They wouldn't have opportunity to sin. Is there, now that the temple is not in existence, what is that number now? Do you know? Uh, well, well, the number gets reduced on both sides significantly. I don't know the exact number, but it's. Is it still more negative than positive? Yes, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm hoping we tilt it down. Darn. Yeah. So he's. <laughs> now there's more. All right, we're good to go. So he's what he says is. Uh, remember, the, well, the schools of like just by default, if we're like not sitting. Remember, the schools of Shammai are waking up every morning, be like, oh man, I have to not kill someone today. The schools of Shammai and Hill are debating at the time where the temple is still extant. It's still, I'm sorry. Extant. In existence. Non-existence? In existence. Oh, in yeah. existence. Yes, that's right. Um, 
Wasn't Chavel the, uh, the, the, uh, the, he was the, uh, he became the, uh, the, the leader? Of yeah, the yeah, so Hillel was a direct descendant of King David, part of the Davidic line. Uh, the, the house of Hillel became known as, as the, the, the family that was the family of royalty. Like uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, the, the rabbi we mentioned earlier, was a direct descendant of Hillel. And all the Rabbi Gamliel's, the famous Rabbi Gamliel's we talked about, I don't know if we mentioned here, about the guy who um, was a leader of the Jewish people after the destruction of the Second Commonwealth in Israel, and he was the one who made all these edicts to prevent schisms after the terrible destruction of the Temple and the dispersal that happened afterwards. Um, he's a descendant of Hillel as well. Uh, either way, says the Marshals like this. says the, the Talmud saying, well, is it better for us to be around or not to be around? Well, if we're not around, well, what happens? Well, we lose all the opportunities, 248 opportunities of greatness, but we sit, we're secure in our capacity of fulfilling the 365 restrictions because, well, if you're not around, you can't, you can't transgress them. Thus, you have guaranteed fulfilling 365 versus losing potentially... 248. And that's better. That's better than having the opportunity for 248, but also the potential of 365 failures. That's what he says. And it's so problematic. Uh, it's astonishingly problematic. Um, yeah, but a lot of those are, are tied. One's, one's the reverse of the other. Okay. So, But still, so, so what? So what? <laughs> it's still a potential for failure, right? Right? You cannot do either. I mean, it goes on both. Huh? Yeah, some mitzvahs are positive, so if you don't do either, I mean, this is that we have to be like constantly be doing those specific mitzvahs all the time. Like, I also, although I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh gosh, I don't have to kill someone today, I also don't like wake up in the morning and be like, gosh, I have to find someone sick to visit. You know, like, I, I don't know to what extent, you know, it's a mitzvah if you do them, but it's not like we're doing them all the time or actively looking to do every single one of them all the time. Well, or, or like I say, or withholding from sinning, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what happens when, right now? Are we sinning? I hope not, right? Um, so, we're, so we're fulfilling the 365 transgressions by not doing it? Is that, is that what he's saying? He's like saying, hey, if you weren't created you're guaranteed to have 365 mitzvahs in the bank. Why? Because you can't possibly sin. Well, if you can't possibly sin, you're not fulfilling... No. If you have no opportunity to sin, is it such a great achievement that you didn't sin? It's not, because you have no opportunity to sin. Oh, all the great people, like... You know, Stalin hasn't sinned in 60 years. What a great guy. Right? Is that is that insane? What what does it say uh, in Genesis when everything's been created, you know, before man was created? Well, does it give a a um, Snapshot of, of yeah of how the world is. It doesn't hurt. Of how the world is at that point in time. Is it copacetic? Is it great? Hey, we're just waiting for mankind to be born, or I, I don't know. Is there? I don't know the literature behind that. Yeah, well, so the the Talmud does talk about. We, we might mention this here as well previously. Um, 
the Talmud talks about, well, why was man created last? Um, clearly, it's working with the understanding that man's the purpose of it all, so well, maybe man should have been first. So it gives four different answers, I believe, in the Talmud and uh, in Sanhedrin. Uh, one of the answers is that, well, if man gets haughty, then you tell him, oh, the mosquito was created before you. One of the answers. Uh, or you first prepare the arena, then you bring in the, you know, the main, the main uh, focal point of the, the feature presentation. Um, but it's clearly a world that is, or I think there's, there's two, there's two points. You're saying even yeah. before the world was, means you're, you're not asking about day one through six. You're asking before day one. Is well, that actually, right? I'm actually asking you about day one through six. Cause I, I, under, we went over those four points. I understand that, but it doesn't really give a snapshot of, I don't want to use the word, is God satisfied, but it is, it did. Thus, when the humans accept God, they're accepting it 
based upon uh, not, not being compelled to do it. Thus, in a reality that di- didn't exist prior is now, now potentially possible, and now it is possible. We say tikkun olam, at large, what, we're, we're, what we mean is humans independently accepting God. That's what we mean in the big picture. And you're looking disturbed, Deborah, because you always thought that tikkun olam means to alleviate human suffering. That's what you thought it meant, right? Okay. True, or may not express that. Yeah. Um, but what the response is that if you actually zoom out to the biggest picture possible, right? We'll just skip a few steps here, but the argument goes that any act of goodness is an act, any act of morality or goodness. Kindness of any sort uh, is an act of affirmation of God, while any act of evil is an act of rejection of God. It's a big picture. I'm saying there's a few steps to get there, but um, that's the that's the idea. Thus, even if someone is not dem- is not is not uh, voicing their uh, acceptance of God, they can do a godly act, and that too is a testament to God, and thus a in a small measure fixing the fundamental flaw of the world, which is by design, that it's possible for humans to reject God. I guess it depends that's on the, how um, you define a godly act. Yeah, that's true. Uh, right. The, the, I would agree. Yeah. Um, but we're going to define the godly act as, as any good act would be a godly act. Um, so... Um, so if Stalin hasn't sinned in 62 years, uh, and yet we don't regard him that highly, what would be this great accomplishment had humans not been created and we would have fulfilled all the negative mitzvahs by dint of us not transgressing them? And um, I'll tell you guys a little secret. secret is that there's a Talmud. This one's the book of Kedushin. Kedushin is a book that deals with marriage. Um, wonderful book. Uh, and in the end of the first chapter, the longest chapter in the whole Talmud, 41 pages. Which, oh, 41 pages, no big deal, right? Uh, most people will spend... No, it's one oh, chapter in a tractate. It's only four, four chapters, uh, but uh, 41 pages to get to chapter two, which is, in Talmudic terms, astronomical. So all at the end there, at page 39b, it says that if someone is sedentary and doesn't sin, they fulfill a mitzvah. Great. So if we weren't created, we're sedentary, we didn't sin, we fulfill a mitzvah. The problem is, if you stopped, if you stopped after one line, it would be great. How about you read the next line, it says, well, that depends. If a sin opportunity came... If there was, uh, if there had arisen an opportunity to sin, and then the person didn't sin, well, then it's mitzvah. If there was an opportunity to sin, of course, you know. The fact that I'm sleeping until 10 o'clock, does that mean that I'm just so much more of a great, righteous person, right? Because I didn't sin for two more hours or three more hours than everyone else. Is, is that really what it means? Ah, uh, no, that doesn't sound, that sounds crazy. That if we weren't created, we'll fulfill all 365 mitzvahs? Seems very bizarre. So, I don't know, I'm not going to, 
have, I don't have the gumption to argue with the Marsha because the Marsha is one of the great Torah scholars of the past 100 years. Well, it sounds like Shuba. Uh-huh. It sounds like Shuba, uh, where you're in the same situation as before, but you're not doing the same. No, but, 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 he's, but he's working on, uh, as an explanation of our Gemara, that tells us that if man was not created, it would have been wonderful. And he's explaining, well, it would have been wonderful because you would have fulfilled all those negative commandments uh, by not by not doing it because you can't do it. Okay, I got a question, kind of a repeat question. Yeah, go ahead. At a different angle. So you told me before <laughs> Adam did a calculated uh, decision. Yes. To sin. Absolutely. So before we didn't have that opportunity. Now we do have that opportunity. Hmm. So you're essentially saying that Adam. Adam did essentially uh, a step further to what God did. God gave us a bad, a bad lot by giving us opportunities to sin. But it wasn't us, it was Adam. It wasn't so many opportunities, it was one sin. And he, you would argue that Adam also uh, would have been better off to not been created. And then comes along Adam and he makes it that much worse for that many more people. Hmm, interesting angle. So he's also someone we have to uh, be uh, appreciative of. Mm, I like that. Good, right? Huh? Well, it was pretty good. It well, it was, it was calculated. Calculated risk for the good. It was calculated, um, but I would argue, I think that's a good, it's a very good, very good point that you're bringing up that from our perspective, now we have so many opportunities to sin. And yes, the flip side of the coin is this, that, that our, that our, um, our mitzvahs and our not sinning is that much greater, but we're better off to not have that choice. Ooh, I like that thought as well. So either way, guys, what are what are what are take what are our takeaways from this discussion? Um, I think that um, we have, I guess, what uh, a little less than two and a half years left. If we spend 14 hours a day talking about this, um, to actually probably reach anywhere near what the, you know, we just scoured a little bit of the Talmud. Um, I think what what's certainly certainly a, a good takeaway from this discussion is just the stakes of our lives. I, I don't think we don't necessarily realize um, because we're thrown into this role without a manual, right? Yeah, we're thrown in without a manual. Yeah, we, the Torah is an inorganic manual, I would say. Right? Yeah, we have the Torah, of course. Um, I assume that's what you're referring to, right? We have a Torah, of course. Uh, but the Torah is not necessarily natural for us, right? The Torah is telling us to do things that are unnatural. Or not unnatural, but are, are, are at least not, um, not um, innate or not... Uh, or counter what our body wants, right? So it's, it's something which is going to be... Uh, it's going to be a struggle, right? It's going to be a struggle for sure. Of course, ultimately we see it's natural for our soul. Of course, I know, I know, I, I know that. But it's something which is not, uh, at least at uh, at first um, acceptance of the Torah, it's going to be difficult. Clearly. Oh, another good takeaway is that if you go faster than the treadmill, you get a box of chocolates. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, He's having that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, 
But wouldn't that be kind of productive, right? Are you trying to lose the weight on the treadmill? Well, <laughs> well back then, before we had machines and tools to do our work, it took about 2,000 calories of work to create 2,000 calories of food. Mm. So any, any, any more... Any more work that you did, you were you had no way to replenish those calories. Is that what you're saying? Well, if you were on the treadmill, you would lose calories. So you needed those. Then you would go faster, and then you get calories back. It's a good response. <laughs> um, so is what the Talmud saying is that it was better that we weren't on the treadmill in the first place and should just gotten the box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but my question, but I, yeah, and that, that's probably what the marshal would have said. Um, but my question is, would you? Can you really get the chocolates or the proverbial chocolates uh, without going on the treadmill, without actually living a life? You're saying it was better but, to have neither to just. But then sit, it goes back to sit there without getting on the treadmill and not getting the chocolates. Too bad. Yeah, but you can't. You can't. But get you didn't fall off the treadmill either. So hey, that's true. But it goes back <laughs> to you can't. You can't get the box of chocolates. Number one, without going on the treadmill, because without the treadmill, there would be no box of chocolates anyway. But would there? Why would? Why would? Why there not? Be? By our soul why is would so God pure. Create the world. He created it for for man. So therefore, well, who said that? Uh-huh. Mm, who said who said God created for man? I got a verse in uh, Isaiah for you. Okay, go. <laughs> <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> it's in there somewhere. <laughs> the verse says very clearly, if you have an Isaiah, I'll read it to you out loud. I'm sure you have an Isaiah. You have a copy, right? I do. Don't bring it. Well, I got the Tanakh. That, that would work. I just, yeah. Excellent. That's perfect. I'd rather have that one actually. Yeah. Say, so, Isaiah's kind of long. I hope you guys have the patience to. Hey, look at that! I open up straight to Isaiah. Okay. <laughs> Riveting. Um, Pretty sure it's in chapter. And this, this is, by the way, the problem uh, with. Maybe chapter 53. I thought it was in 43. Might be 53. The problem with. Um, why don't we Google this, guys? Save you guys the pain and anguish of watching me. <laughs> futilely okay so no you've already been here 2.0 no I would just google it Yeah, it wasn't 43. <laughs> 43.7. And I quote. 43.7. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have fashioned, even perfected. Um, so what that um, says, plainly, um, 
everything that I did was I created for my glory. Um, and whenever Lutato opens up all of his books, almost every one of his books, he starts off with um, the idea of man being created for man's good, God wanted to do good. And the question uh, with that is, is that Lutato, 1707 to seventeen. 46 can't really argue with Isaiah <laughs> uh, when Isaiah says that everything God created was for God's glory it's one of the great questions um, one of the great questions that we uh, can possibly ask and in fact I saw in my grandfather's writing I saw um, twice where he references the question and one time he tells listen when I, this is a good question and we're not going to answer it right now another time he says I just saw it yesterday he says, it's a great question, and the answer is rooted in Kabbalah, which to me is his way of saying that it's not so simple what the answer is. I have an answer. Um, we're, in, we're essentially looking at it from God's perspective versus our perspective. Um... So let's let's work with with what we have accepted till today, right? And that is that we, God created us for our benefit to do to give us pleasure to benefit us, right? Right? Hmm? Oh, well, I was going to say no, but go ahead. Oh, that's what Lutato would say. But that's not what we're. That's not. That's not what you. Lutato says that. No, I know. <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm I'm not no, going to argue with what Lutato said. I'm just saying. <laughs> Oh, so you... I don't... Let's answer one question. I've read it. Okay. That's great. Oh, okay. Fine. Fine, <laughs> fine, fine, fine. <laughs> fine. So, but, but remember, you and I are not going to argue with Lutato either, right? No, That would be all. silly. Um, Lutato is one of the great philosophers of, of all time of Jewish history. Uh, what he says goes. That's just simple as that. So he says that, and clearly it's in direct opposition with the verse in Isaiah. Um, my answer is that what Lutato is telling us is... Man was created to have the pleasure of God and God to do good for us. So from our perspective, we are created for pleasure. From God's perspective, he created us for expansion of his kingdom. Well, how, how, how do those two disparate things unite? Because how do we get the pleasure? How do we get Olam above? How do, by doing Tikkun Olam. By bringing the down to the world. So it's really one thing that's the ultimate purpose. For us, it means to do tikkun olam, and for us, what, what does that mean? That means that we achieve our destiny, and we achieve the pleasure of Olam Abba. What happens for the world at large, cosmically, well then, the idea of God is brought down into the world in a much more powerful way. Well, thus, <laughs> thus, essentially, they're not arguing but it's which way are you looking at it? You're looking at it from God's perspective or our, our perspective. Right. So, and that makes a lot of sense. So, yes, God's saying, I created it for my glory. Was well, not saying, well, man was created to have pleasure. Well, which one is it? What's Nishma or Lo Nishma? Huh? Nishma or Lo Nishma? Well, why? So, but it goes back to, to you do it for, you, we, we do the mitzvah for God. We get pleasure in pleasing God by doing the mitzvah. Mm. That's the ultimate goal is to get to that level. In pleasing God for the mitzvah? Yeah, so we do the mitzvah. Okay, so I'm going to... It brings God joy when we do the mitzvah. Well, 
let's um, let's let's put a pin in this because I feel like we we just crossed the ten o'clock mark, and I know that it, I, we could launch right now. It'll take at least another half hour for for us to agree on this. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, does but are you so sure that when it says lishma and, and we're saying Hebrew words here, um, but lishma yeah, means. I'm uh, sorry, I apologize for that. But are you so sure that lishma is not fulfilled when someone does something with the intention of getting olam haba? Hmm. Mull it over before you give an answer. Either way, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry? Sure. Um, either way, uh, who's, who, who, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say like a mishabeach for him? You do them. Shall we do that? You know his Hebrew name. I, I don't know. Okay, so we'll say 